A New Human Chain, Act 1, Why Nations Fail. In 2013, in a world economic history class that was part of my master's course, I was introduced to the seminal book called Why Nations Fail. As the name implies, the book attempts to explain the political economy of the world, why some nations and some populations prosper and others don't, through the lens of political and economic institutions. It is, of course, a fool's errand to summarize any book, let alone one as important and complex as this one, in a few words, but I'll try anyway. In a nutshell, the authors argue that the difference between successful nations and failed nations lies in their institutional makeup, in particular, in the difference between inclusive and extractive institutions. Inclusive institutions are those that incentivize citizens to work hard and contribute constructively, secure in the knowledge that they themselves will profit by doing so. By contrast, extractive institutions are those established primarily to extract wealth from one group of people, e.g. the common citizenry, and hand it to another group, e.g. the elites. A nation that exhibits primarily inclusive institutions is more likely to promote broad economic prosperity, whereas one with extractive institutions is doomed to stagnation. After all, the wealth of a nation exists in its people. When this wealth is plundered with impunity by a class of looters without the rule of law or property rights, those people have little incentive to work hard and produce a surplus. Why nations fail is admittedly imperfect. It has an ambitious mandate and must sometimes paint its narrative in broad strokes. For example, it fails to adequately explore the influence of material factors such as geography, climate, and agriculture. It also fails to explain what gives rise to good institutions in the first place. However, its fundamental argument is cogent and difficult to dispute. Over the years since reading the book, I found that seeing the world through this lens of good institutions versus bad institutions has been especially helpful in understanding why things are the way they are. In particular, it seems clear to me that good, inclusive institutions are indeed a prerequisite for so many of the things we want to see in the world. Health, wealth, education, and much else besides. This institutional lens is becoming even more important as the world becomes more complex and as the pace of change continues to accelerate. The institutions we presently rely on arose in a world that was far different from today's. So it's no surprise that they're increasingly failing to keep up with the new reality. Humanity is in the process of transitioning from the industrial age to a new information age, one defined by software, algorithms, AI, and other powerful technological tools. We will design new institutions to meet the challenge of this new age, utilizing these new tools. However, this is a double-edged sword. While these tools, like those that came before them, will doubtless increase the overall productivity and prosperity, they will also increasingly circumscribe human behavior, reduce the role of human agency, discretion, and fallibility. Inevitably, we will delegate more decision-making power to those new institutions and come to rely on them more than we have ever relied on institutions before. It's therefore imperative that we internalize the hard-won lesson of what makes for good institutions in the first place, inclusivity. We must design and engineer our institutions in such a way that they include as many humans as possible in cycles of value creation and capture.
We face unprecedented challenges today as a species. How do we provide jobs for 10 billion humans without completely destroying the planet? How can we keep 10 billion people happy and safe in an age when technology empowers a single disgruntled individual to cause massively disproportionate levels of misery and destruction? The institutions at our disposal today are legacy institutions, creatures of the past that was much simpler, smaller, and slower. To be clear, they aren't completely without merit, and we have seen many wins. Our world is one that is healthier, richer, and more peaceful than at any point in the past. And yet the existential threats continue to grow. They are the white walkers, and these legacy institutions are the wall that will fail to keep them at bay. They have served us well, but they simply aren't up to the task of coordinating the increasingly intertwined interests of 10 billion humans. To see the failure of legacy institutions in action, we need only look at the growing gap between the rich and the poor, the rise of populism, the global stagnation of democracy, and our utter failure to tackle looming big-picture crises such as climate change. We need fresh thinking, and we need fresh institutions. We need solutions informed by the lessons of the past, but built using powerful new tools and ideas, and designed to scale to a planet of 10 billion sovereign individuals and beyond. The single biggest failure of the existing system is the collapse of trust. Trust is a linchpin that undergirds human society. It holds everything together. All of our existing institutions are built on trust. As Nick Zabo points out, these institutions, from private companies to national banks and the court system to abstract institutions such as marriage and money, are the tools of social scalability that allow modern human societies of millions or even billions of people to function despite the fact that it's impossible for all members to know one another on a personal basis. In other words, these institutions allow us to transcend the hard-coded social and cognitive limitations of Dunbar's number, since we put our trust in those institutions instead of in each other directly. But in recent years, that trust has begun to erode. We see the collapse of trust all around us, manifest in myriad of ways. The rise of populism, a resurgent isolationism exemplified in Brexit, ongoing protests in Moscow, Paris, and Hong Kong, the growing frustration with Facebook's continuous flagrant violations of its users' privacy, widespread outage at bank bailouts and crony capitalism. We live in an age of questioning authority, of questioning received canonical sources of knowledge and power. The power dynamic has been flipped upside down, from surveillance to surveillance. The watched have become the watchers. Self-sovereign citizen journalists, cypherpunk bloggers hold the government and the man to account while incumbent empires crumble. These trends by themselves are positive. But taken to the extreme, they have some powerful implications. When no one is in charge, when no one has authority, when no one is trusted, how do we reach consensus on the path forward? Nowhere does anyone seem to have an answer to this increasingly critical question. What comes next? Wither hands, fellow travelers. Human history is shaped by unstoppable, all-encompassing social and political forces. This was certainly the case in the 20th century, retrospectively dubbed the fiat century. This is an apt sobriquet indeed. 
partly due to the end of the gold standard and the rise of fiat money, backed by nothing but the full faith and credit of the modern welfare state. Also, more broadly, due to the emergence of natural economies of scale, an aggression of power that resulted from the big everything, big oil, big companies, big countries, big governments, big fiat money. In hindsight, this seems like the natural culmination of an industrial revolution. Humans began their evolutionary journey as nomadic hunter-gatherers, which was a naturally decentralized state of affairs. At some point, some of our ancestors abandoned their wandering ways, laying down roots in sedentary villages and perfecting agriculture and animal husbandry. With these new technologies came accumulation of property and wealth. Suddenly, owning more cows or wives than your neighbor gave you more wealth, power, and influence. Big men became chiefs, chiefs became kings. Villages grew into towns, which grew into cities, which were consolidated by ambitious kings into vast, sprawling empires. This progression suggests that humans are hoarders by nature. This cult of the big, the more, continued to grow. The process began so slowly that it was barely perceptible at first. But 10,000 years later, by the 20th century, the curve tilted even more steeply towards its logical conclusion. Fukuyama's end of history, a nation-state system that perfectly models a power law distribution with the lion's share of wealth, power, and resources in the hands of the tiny few, supported by rampant consumerism and fueled by cheap credit. Alas, the great moderation is over. We've reached an inflection point, a refragmentation, to borrow Paul Graham's phrase. All extremes are unsustainable, run their course, and eventually, ironically, give rise of their antithesis. Just as the fast food movement has begun to be superseded by a slow food revolution, the age of the big everything, of massive economies of scale, is waning and a new age is dawning. Not everything about this new age is visible yet, but one thing is very clear. Supersized economies of scale are coming to an end. Massive continental armies are losing ground to ragtag bands of flip-flop-wearing guerrillas. Billion-dollar defense budgets are increasingly given a run for their money by a motley crew of cypherpunks and hackers. Tiny, agile startups that outsource nearly everything run circles around big, slow-moving, vertically integrated corporations and increasingly outcompete them for talent and capital. Oversized, overfed welfare states are losing competitiveness to clever microstates like Estonia, Malta, and Singapore that, while resource poor, are smarter and better able to respond to the changing times. And these trends are only the beginning. Buckle up, buckaroos, because things are about to get a heck of a lot weirder. The writing is on the wall. We need a new society with new ways of thinking about and solving the problems that face us, and new tools predicated on this new reality. Less General Motors, more General Mayhem. The nation-state, the largest and most ubiquitous of Zabo's technologies of social scalability, has run its course. Massive centralization made sense when the only way to protect oneself from bodily harm was to hand an exclusive license on the use of violence to the state. It made sense when, in an era of continental warfare, the only way to secure a nation's peace and prosperity was to align with one of the global 
hegemonic superpowers. But the war of the future will not be fought primarily or exclusively using physical violence. In an era of cryptography and strong privacy, the returns to violence will, thankfully, continue to diminish. What then comes next? Stay tuned for Act 2, Down the Rabbit Hole. <laughs>